good morning. You all either remember to turn your clocks forward or this is the best showing for Sunday school we've ever had. So in <laughs> either case, good morning. Uh, if you're just joining us for the first time, we are right at the end of a series on the book of Ephesians. In fact, we just have one more week left in Ephesians. And each week we've been, um, as we've looked at Ephesians, we've asked this question, what is this letter to this church, the church in Ephesus, what does that have to tell us about what it means to become a community of grace or to become more a community of grace? And this morning we're going to be looking in particular about at what this passage has to tell us about how to think about our work. We're going to talk about work today. So as we get ready to uh, read this passage, which is Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. As we get ready to read that, let's, let's come to the Lord in prayer together. Let's pray. Father, this is your word, and we ask that you would be gracious to us this morning, and by your Spirit, open it up to us, that we might hear you, and we might respond. Open our hearts to your word, that we might be changed by you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. If you happen to be using one of our pew Bibles, this is on page 979. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. Masters, do the same to them. Stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. As I mentioned, we're going to be talking about work this morning, but, but before we do that, I need to at least say a few words about what we're not talking about. And we are not talking about uh, the long history of mankind and even um, the uh, complicity of the church in many places and ages with the institution of slavery. Okay, we're going to talk about this passage to see what it has to tell us about our work. Um, as, as you know, even the church itself has a poor track record with slavery. There were times when the church used the Bible itself to try to defend slavery. Okay, now let me just say a couple words. Paul is not commenting on the rightness or wrongness of slavery. He's speaking into a world in Rome where, depending on where you lived in Rome, certainly in the urban centers, up to one-third of the population were slaves. Now, when we hear slavery, we, of course, uh, most naturally think about slavery in the American South. And there are some significant differences between the kind of slavery that Paul is talking about and the way that that was experienced in the United States and other places in modern era. For one thing, it was not race-based. Um, slavery in the ancient world, uh, there are many ways you could become a slave. You could indenture yourself to someone if you were in debt and needed to get out of that. Uh, very often, slaves were captured in war in um, about 50 years, or about 100 years, excuse me, before this passage was written. Julius Caesar was in Gaul conquering that for the, on behalf of the Roman Empire, and during his years in Gaul, in about a five-year span, he sent back something like a million slaves to Rome. Okay, you could be captured in warfare. Oftentimes, you could earn your way out of slavery through the work that you did. Slaves in Rome were often allowed to hold property. Some slaves apparently even had slaves of their own. If you were to walk down the street in Rome, you would not be able to tell a slave from a free man. 
Okay, there was no racial distinction to market, no distinction in dress. Slavery was a very different thing. As a couple of writers um, have pointed out, one that I read said, taking away slavery in the ancient world, that would have been as comprehensible to somebody as to say, we should ban all automobiles. That's, a, that's about how that would have sounded to somebody in the ancient world. Or as another one said, it would be like imagining tomorrow picking up with your lives with no electricity. Okay? Now, that is not at all a defense of slavery. And scripture shouldn't be used that way, but it is to say Paul is doing something different here. He's speaking into a world where slavery existed, and he's saying, how does following Christ transform the world given the world that we live in? Okay, Paul, early Christians had no political power, and they didn't until at least the 4th century. They were in a time when this was the reality of the day, and Paul speaks into that. And we're going to look at this today to say, what does this say to us about the service that we do in this world? Okay? What does it tell us about this very important part of all our lives? We've looked in this, in this, just this section over the last few weeks about how the gospel impacts our family lives, how it relates to husbands and wives relating together. We've taken a look at what does the gospel say about how children and parents are to relate. And then Paul turns here to another member of the household in this church that he looks at, and he says, we're going to address what it means for slaves and masters um, to interact together given the reality of the gospel. And for us it means that not only does the gospel speak into our family lives and how we parent and how we relate with spouses, it speaks into our lives as workers, those who um, are involved in work in the world. Because of that, it tells us the gospel has great power to transform the way we think about and experience our work. And it still applies to us because we still, most of us, many of us, serve earthly masters. We have great freedom. We can walk away from that. We have many more freedoms than Paul's audience did. But we still uh, sell out at least 40 hours a week of our lives to someone else in labor. Okay, so here's the point for this morning, what we're going to see. The gospel redeems our work, and it frees us from our work, and it frees us in our work by giving us three things. A new master, a new service, and a new reward. Okay, new master, new service, new reward. First, a new master. <clears throat> for anyone who has had a job and not been the head honcho in that job, you know what it's like to struggle with the fact that in our work world, we have people who are over us. We have bosses, we have supervisors, we have um, commanding officers. Some of us, our boss, and our, depending on our business, could realistically be our clients or the company itself. How are we supposed to relate as people who work or have worked or will work? How are we supposed to relate to those who are in authority over us in our work? Well, verse 5 of uh, Romans 6 gives us a fairly sharp direction. It says, slaves, or we could say employees, workers, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. He says to obey our masters, to obey those in authority over us in work. Now, just as we said with um, parents and children, and as we talked about with wives and husbands, obey in this context doesn't mean do any and every absolute thing that your boss requires you to do. It doesn't mean you need to be uh, a complicit pawn in Enron. Okay? It doesn't mean that you do things that are illegal and immoral. Okay? Now that should be a relief to us, but for most of us that doesn't really let us off the hook because most of us are not being called to those things in our work. That's not really where our struggle and work lies. Um, but it should go without saying that obey does have limitations. Um, notice that when he says, that what Paul says here is that when you obey your earthly masters, 
when you submit yourself and work to those in authority over you. You are serving Christ. Okay, he goes out of his way to say this to us three times. Verse 5, he says, Obey as you would Christ. Uh, he goes on to say that we are servants of Christ. Verse 7, that our obedience and our service is as to the Lord and not to man. Then he goes on, Paul gives an interesting challenge to those in authority, to those who are the boss, who are the supervisor. A challenge to masters in verse 9. What does he say to them? He says, stop your threatening. For the same reason that he, as he speaks to, the, to those who are the slaves, who are the employees, he says, for both of you, employees and employers, you have a master who is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. Paul goes out of his way to say that we actually serve one master, our Lord Jesus himself. He is the one that we serve, even in the mundane parts of our work. Okay, now this, this ought to have some uh, profound implications for our work. First, it's going to radically change our attitudes towards our bosses. Okay? In our day-to-day work, whether we, whatever masters we serve, Paul says you are, in fact, serving Jesus. As a Christian, if you are someone following Jesus, he says that in that context of your life, you are actually following Jesus. And Paul gives this command to Christian slaves, but to those who are living with good masters and those who are living with bad masters. Okay, both existed in the ancient world. Some masters treated their slaves very well, and some were extraordinarily harsh with them. But Paul takes the whole argument to a whole different plane. He says, ultimately, you are not serving your master. You are serving Jesus in your work. It changes our attitude towards our masters. It ought to change our attitude towards our work as well. Paul is saying something um, that Christians still have their trouble getting their minds around, and that is that there is really no distinction between the sacred and the secular in life. There's not this sacred sphere of things that we do that are about our relationship with Jesus, and then there's this secular sphere of all these things that we do for the rest of our week, for most of our time. Okay, that means for us as workers that your job is one of the primary avenues in your life for your discipleship, for your growth as a Christian. Okay, this is enormous. Think about how many hours most of us spend working each week. Okay, now that's whether that's in a job or in class if you're a student, if it's, a, if it's working around your house, it's helping your friends and neighbors, if it's serving at the church. Forty hours and more, often many more hours of our lives are spent in work. Does Jesus have anything to do with that? Is he there in any sense? Or is he just here with us for a couple hours on Sunday morning? That means that in the middle of all that work that we do at work, around the house, with our kids, doing laundry, weeding the garden, Jesus is in that too. That means that he is there in both what we would call the sacred things we do and the secular. He's there with us this morning. He will be with us tomorrow in the middle of the very work that we're doing. And here's the thing. We don't really believe that. Okay, let me ask you a question. Which of the following activities in your week is most spiritual? A, cleaning up after dinner. B, watching a movie. C, praying. D, meeting with a client at work. Or fill in whatever the equivalent is in your work. E, sharing the gospel with a friend. Okay, which one of these is most spiritual? I mean, you you feel the the tension here. Um, You know, all these things might be good or acceptable, but surely, you know, we want to say option C or option E. I mean, after all, 
you're praying to God, right? You're talking to him, you're listening to him. What could be more significant or more spiritual than that? Or even better, you're sharing the gospel with a friend. You're talking to a friend of yours about the hope that you found in Jesus, the way he's transformed your life, the way he offers himself to sinners. Surely, surely that's got to be at the top of the list. Jesus is most pleased with me when I'm praying, when I'm sharing the gospel. How about this question? Which job is most spiritual? A, farmer. B, missionary. C, social worker. D, pastor. E, stockbroker. Okay, doesn't it feel like we should say B or D? I'm one of the few people in this room who gets to feel good today. (laughs) Why is that? Because, I mean, if you're a missionary, if you're a pastor, then you're in full-time Christian service. You're doing the Lord's work. You're doing something good. The rest of us, we're doing just merely worldly things. Okay? The gospel gives us another option, option F. All of the above. What's most spiritual? Where do we most experience Jesus in all of those things? Um, A cobbler, a shoemaker, asked Martin Luther once, uh, apparently wanted, was considering becoming a a pastor, and he says, what should I do? And Luther said, if you're a cobbler, if you're a shoemaker, here's how you glorify Jesus. You make a good shoe and sell it at a good price. That's what being a faithful Christian as a cobbler means. Um, Notice he didn't say, get a spiritual job. Become a pastor. Be a missionary. This is Luther speaking. That's what he's done all his life. He's been a monk. He's now a pastor. And he tells this cobbler to go do his job well. That's what following Jesus means for him. And that doesn't mean that some of us don't seriously need to consider whether or not the Lord might be calling us to be a pastor or a missionary or serve in in other ways. But it's not because it's a better calling or a more significant calling. It is a calling he gives some of us. But he calls us to go into all areas of life and all areas of the world. I had some great applications for college students, but they're on spring break, so I'm going to skip them. Um, Now, what that means for us is that it invests our work with a a new and and profound significance. It means that when you're at work, you're not simply on the treadmill wasting your life away. It means that we're invited to see Jesus in even the most mundane tasks of our life. I had a friend named Byron who is a pastor and preceded me at the seminary where I went. And he... uh, told me about a, a working situation he had. There for several students, there, there were people in the community that offered these um, you know, free rent if you spend a few hours working around their house. They'd have a, you know, a garage apartment or something, and Byron lived in one of those. And this particular one uh, was owned by a dentist who was uh, notoriously meticulous and hard to please. And he was a fanatic about his yard, so that the seminary guys in succession who lived on his property and, and got free housing had to spend hours each week pulling weeds out of the yard under his careful eye. Now, those of you that have been to Disney World, you can sort of imagine that lawn, right? No trash would dare deposit itself in Disneyland's grass. And, it, you know, I, I think this man's yard was the same way. And Byron made this comment to me. He said, this job has made me become a true Calvinist, okay? <laughs> now, he was joking, but what he was trying to say was this. You have to really believe that God is sovereign over every aspect of your life, at work, everywhere, to believe that when you're on your hands and knees picking out the minutest weed, that Jesus is there and that's good work that pleases him. See, the hours that Byron spent while he was in seminary picking those weeds were as much a part of God's work in his life at that time in his life as were the hours that he spent in seminary, in class, doing his homework. 
Jesus was at work in both those things. You see, the gospel frees us from our work because it gives us a new master, Jesus himself. It tells us the fundamental reality in our life when we serve is that we're not serving the master himself, the earthly master, but our service is to Jesus, the master who stands behind him. We are serving Christ, the Son of God, the Savior who took off his robe of heavenly glory that he might stop and wrap a towel around himself and wash his disciples' feet, the work that only a slave would do. Jesus, the master of all things, the one through whom God created the whole world, Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This Jesus is the master that we serve, even in our work, our jobs, our careers, whatever job that might be. Slaves, employees, Jesus is your master. And masters, employers, Jesus is your master. Okay, he gives us a new master. Second thing is he gives us a new service, one that is now respectful and sincere. Because Christ is our master, we are freed now in the reality of our day-to-day life and day-to-day job uh, to serve Jesus in a whole new way, wherever we find ourselves employed. Okay, the first idea, look at it respectful. Look at verse 5. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. Uh, This word fear that's used here, it's the same word translated in in chapter 5, verse 21, where it says we are to have reverence for Christ. And it's the same word that's that's translated in chapter 5, verse 33, when it says, wives, you need to respect your husbands. Okay, this is not talking about, you know, abject, cringing, servile fear. But it's talking about real and deep respect for those that we serve. John Stott says this, this word implies not a cringing servility before a human master, but rather a reverent acknowledgement of the Lord Jesus, whose authority the master represents. Okay, this is remarkable. It means that your boss, whoever, whatever capacity that might be, that you show them the respect you show to Christ. It means that you are respectful not only to their face, but also behind their back. If your boss is a difficult person, then this attitude of yours is going to be radically misunderstood by your coworkers. When you don't participate in the grousing, in the mocking, in the disrespect, it's going to cause misunderstanding for you. That brings up a simple question for us, because you're thinking you don't know my boss. Uh, How are you going to be respectful to a boss that isn't worthy of respect? Only by doing what Paul's already exhorted both wives to do and children to do, which is essentially this. Look over the shoulder of your boss to the one who stands behind him. You are serving not because of the worthiness of that person, but because of Jesus, who is your ultimate master, who's called you into this place. You are serving him. Uh, And this puts hands and feet on our respect for Christ by making us play that out in a very real situation of our lives. Okay, respect. Second thing is sincere. Verse 5, Paul mentions that we are to serve with a sincere heart. Singleness of purpose. Focus. Okay, this is a challenge for us because we tend to ask in our work, what am I going to get out of this? Okay, whether that's salary or respect or recognition. Okay, what does Paul say? Serve with sincerity, with a singleness of purpose. He goes on to say, not as people pleasers, not eye service. 
Okay, this term eye service may be translated a little bit differently if you have the NIV or another translation. Um, This phrase may well have been coined by Paul. There's no appearance in Greek literature of this before Paul says it. But what does it mean? It means that when you are working, you are not simply working well when your boss's eye is upon you, when he's going to notice, when there's a chance that she is going to walk by and see what you're doing. When I was in high school, I had a computer, a computer game that was a, it was a submarine hunting game. Okay? So you're the sub, sub, submariner, submariner, Navy guys. Um, submarine game. And this, there, was, there was a button in the game on the keyboard where if you pushed it, then a, um, automatically on your screen would appear like this spreadsheet. And, that, and it was there so that if you're playing the submarine game at work and your boss comes by, you can hit this button, and suddenly it looks like the spreadsheet from work. Okay. What does, what does Paul say? He says, not eye service, not simply when your boss's eye is upon you. Your work is to be of the highest quality, whether you are being noticed or not. When your boss is likely to walk by your desk, and even when she isn't. Goes on to say, not people pleasers. Your work is not to be done with the purpose of currying favor and approval from other people. What does he replace it with? What do we replace eye service and, and people pleasing with? Verse six and verse seven: doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will. All these have to do with the motivation and the quality of our work. There should be no such thing as shabby work done by Christians. And I've heard people say things like, I've got work to be done. I'm certainly not going to ask a Christian because it won't be done well. Applies to whatever our work is, whether in the working world or if you're a student in your studies, then our work is to be done well because you are serving Jesus in that. First point is that we have a new master. It addresses the question, you don't know how bad my boss is. This point, I think, addresses, but you don't know how bad my work is. You don't know how bad my classes are this semester. You don't know how hard it is to work around my particular house. You know, whatever your work is, maybe some of you have had, or maybe currently have, have some really bad jobs. Um, I know folks that have litanies of stories they could tell about all the bad jobs that they had in college. I've managed to avoid most of these. When I was growing up, my dad told me about the job he had in high school, scraping gum off the bottom of movie theater seats, and I thought I should try to avoid that kind of thing. But some of us have had all kinds of bad jobs. I typed worst jobs into Google, and it came up with 21,800,000 hits. <laughs> there are lots of websites devoted to the world's worst jobs. One of which I found, there's a British TV station that did a series on the worst jobs in history, in this case, you know, British Western history, uh, going through each time period beginning with the Romans. Okay, here's some of the worst jobs in history. Leech collector, treadmill worker, Swabber's mate, violin string maker, steeplejack, rat catcher, soap boiler. Okay, one of my favorite was the Saxon oarsman. Here's what the Saxon oarsman said. Have you got strong arms, a love of fish, and your own spoon? Then get your name down for this one. The Saxon oarsman, also known as a thole sitter, needs to be keen to see the known world, not scared of water, and more importantly, not scared of Vikings. If... <laughs> If you're a bit handy and fancy an adventure, why not join up with Alfred the Great's new navy? 
Using our latest technological wonder, our own version of the Viking longboat, you can take to the waves and revel in the sieve-like nature of your loose-planked marine vehicle. Using your spoon with a plum, you can bail out the water that sloshes around your feet as you mumble the latest sea shanty. If the wind chill and icy waters get you down, you can always spice up a coastal patrol with a good helping of backbreaking rowing. Saxon oarsmen. Okay, you're thinking, maybe some of you, you don't know how hard the work is that I'm engaged in or have done. You don't know all the challenges and struggles of my difficult job. And you're right, I don't. Two things. Christ does know. Your Savior does know. He is there with you. Second thing, this passage was written to slaves, to people in servitude whose lives were literally not their own. If it can apply to them, then it can apply to us in the middle of the difficulties of our own work. If you're a Saxon oarsman, if you're a Roman slave, if you're in your job, your work is to be respectful from the heart, free from people-pleasing, free from eye service. I said earlier the gospel frees us from our work because it gives us a new master. And here we see the gospel also frees us in our work because it sends us back into our work with a whole new motivation and a whole new understanding of what it is we are doing in our work. We are serving Jesus. When my wife and I were in college, uh, Elizabeth was going through this time of wrestling through this, what, you know, what kind of career should I, should I follow? What kind of career would God be calling me to? And you know the angst of that. Um, she had a, a friend, one of our fellow students, came up and said, you know, I think it's probably more likely that God cares a lot more about who you are than what you do in your job. And that still uh, resounds as good advice. It's another way of saying God cares a lot more about how you do your work and for what ultimate master than he does about what job you happen to have at the time. And third thing, a new reward. The gospel gives us a new reward in our work. Uh, Look what it says in verse 8. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. Listen to the promise of this. Whatever good work you do, done unto your Savior, you will receive back from the Lord. What exactly does that mean? I don't entirely know. Paul doesn't spell it out. It is clear in the pages of Scripture that doesn't mean work hard and Jesus will reward you with salvation. That is a gift that he's given us. My guess is it means something more like this. If you are in your family, think about your relationship with your, let's say your relationship with your parents, if it was a good one. You are in that family. You are secure as a child in that family. And when you work in a way that honors and pleases your parents, isn't there reward in that? Isn't there encouragement? Isn't there the joy that's shared between a parent and his child? And I would guess it's something more like that. Jesus promises us that all the good work that we do in light of him finds its reward in him, our gracious Savior. That means that your Savior is watching you in your work, and your good work is not wasted. It does not go unnoticed. It may well go unnoticed and unrewarded by your boss, by your company, by the people around you. Jesus notices employees, slaves, whatever good work you do, rewarded by your true master. And at the end, again, it turns to the masters, to the employers, to the supervisors, the CEOs. And it's a promise, too, for those of you who are in those positions. Whatever good you do for your employees, whatever good you do for those under your care, you will receive it back from the Lord. 
you'll be rewarded for your faithful service. It is good news for us that our Lord Jesus notices everything and that he cares and that in this part of our life, 40 plus hours of our week, a huge part of the way we spend ourselves and our energy, that Jesus is there in the middle of that. The gospel frees us both from our work and in our work. It frees us from our work because we now have a new master, one who has loved us by serving us, and it frees us in our work because the value of our work is no longer tied to our job itself. All legitimate work for our new master in this new way with respect, sincerity, these are acts of worship for our Lord, for our master who's brought us into his new family, into this new life, into such a great salvation that we can now live lives that matter even in this vast part of our life that we spend doing our work, that Jesus is there too. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that in Jesus you bring us into your family. That in Jesus you lavish your care and even reward on us. Father, we pray that you would encourage us this week in the midst of the very mundane tasks of our life that we might be aware, remember, and glory in the fact that these are done in the sight of Jesus, that we are not, in fact, alone, and that you step into every nook and cranny of our lives that you might bring life to us in every nook and cranny of our lives. May it be so even more this week. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand together and sing our closing hymn.